0: So I'm the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Lemo, and today is day 93 in our exploration of this fantastic catechism. Today we are going to continue our discussion of the sacrament of matrimony. In day 92, we began our discussion of marriage as being an institution of nature. Natural law has um, provided for the propagation of the human species by this institution of marriage which we defined as a stable union between one man and one woman by mutual consent for the sake of children. We noted that that's a wonderful definition because it follows the four causes of Aristotle, the formal cause being a stable union, the the material cause between one man and one woman, the efficient or agent cause by mutual consent, and then the final cause for the sake of children. Uh, But today we are going to continue reading from the Catechism under the subheading Marriage Considered as a Sacrament. So let us begin reading there, page 315 in my text. It will now be necessary to explain that matrimony is far superior in its sacramental aspect and aims at an incomparably higher end. For as marriage as a natural union was instituted from the beginning to propagate the human race, so was the sacramental dignity subsequently conferred upon it in order that a people might be begotten and brought up for the service and worship of the true God and of Christ our Savior. And so we already know there that just as the natural end of marriage is the propagation of the human race, so in the church that God established, there needs to be some kind of institution to fill up the church of God. And so we can see that uh, God... Christ himself raised this natural thing um, with a natural end to a, to a supernatural purpose. We continue. Thus, when Christ our Lord wished to give a sign of the intimate union that exists between him and his church and of his immense love for us, he chose especially the sacred union of man and wife. That this sign was a most appropriate one will readily appear from the fact that that of all human relations there is none that binds so closely as the marriage tie, and from the fact that husband and wife are bound to one another by the bonds of the greatest affection and love. Hence it is that Holy Writ so frequently represents to us the divine union of Christ and the Church under the figure of marriage. That matrimony is a sacrament, the Church following the authority of the Apostle, has always held to be certain and incontestable. In his epistle to the Ephesians, he writes, Men should love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, as also Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall adhere to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the Church. And that, of course, is St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. Now, his expression, this is a great sacrament, undoubtedly refers to matrimony and must be taken to mean that the union of man and wife, which is which has God for its author, is a sacrament. That is, a sacred sign of that most holy union that binds Christ our Lord to his church. And we remember that uh, St. Thomas and the Catechism have given us this definition of a sacrament from from St. Augustine, uh, a sign of a sacred thing. And so here, marriage, the bond between the, the man and his wife, are a sign of the sacred union between Christ and his church. So that clearly meets the definition of sacrament. That this is the true and proper meaning of the Apostle's words is shown by the ancient holy fathers who have interpreted them, and by the explanation furnished by the Council of Trent. It is indubitable, therefore, that the Apostle compares the husband to Christ and the wife to the church, that the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and that for this very reason the husband should love his wife, and the wife love and respect her husband. For Christ loved his church and gave himself for her, while, as the same apostle teaches, the Church is subject to Christ. That grace is also signified and conferred by the sacrament, which are two properties that constitute the principal characteristics of each sacrament, is declared by the Council as follows. By his Passion, Christ, the Author and Perfecter of the Venerable Sacraments, merited for us the grace that perfects the natural love of husband and wife, confirms their indissoluble union and sanctifies them. It should therefore be shown that by the grace of this sacrament, husband and wife are joined in the bonds of mutual love, cherish affection one towards the other, avoid illicit attachments and passions, and so keep their marriage honorable in all things, and their bed undefiled. And now the Catechism continues under the subheading, Marriage before Christ, it was not a sacrament. How much the sacrament of matrimony is superior to the marriages made both previous to and under the Mosaic law may be judged from the fact that though the Gentiles themselves were convinced there was something divine in marriage, and for that reason regarded promiscuous intercourse as contrary to the law of nature, while they also considered fornication, adultery, and other kinds of impurity to be punishable offenses. Yet, their marriages never had any sacramental value. Among the Jews, the laws of marriage were observed far more religiously, and it cannot be doubted that their unions were endowed with more holiness, as they had received from God the promise that in the seed of Abraham all nations should be blessed. It was justly considered by them to be a very pious duty to bring forth children And thus contribute to the propagation of the chosen people from whom Christ the Lord and Savior was to derive his birth in his human nature. Still, their unions also fell short of the real nature of a sacrament. We have the subheading Before Christ, marriage had fallen from its primitive unity and indissolubility. It should be added that if we consider the law of nature after the fall and the law of Moses, We shall easily see that marriage had fallen from its original honor and purity. Thus, under the law of nature, we read of many of the ancient patriarchs that they had several wives at the same time, while under the law of Moses it was permissible, should cause exist, to repudiate one's wife by giving her a bill of divorce. Both these concessions have been suppressed by the law of the gospel. And marriage has been restored to its original state though some of the ancient patriarchs are not to be blamed for having married several wives since they did not act thus without divine dispensation yet christ our lord has clearly shown that polygamy is not in keeping with the nature of matrimony these are his words for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be two in one flesh And he adds, Wherefore, they are no more two but one flesh. In these words, he makes it clear that God instituted marriage to be the union of two and only two persons. The same truth he has taught very distinctly in another passage, wherein he says, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if the wife shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. That's in Mark chapter 10. For if it were lawful for a man to have several wives, there is no reason why he who takes to himself a second wife, along with a wife he already has, should be regarded as more guilty of adultery than if he had dismissed his first wife and taken a second. Hence it is that when an infidel who, following the customs of his country, has married several wives, happens to be converted to the true religion, the church orders him to dismiss all but the first and regard her alone as his true and lawful wife. And now the Catechism continues with the indissolubility of marriage. The self-same testimony of Christ our Lord easily proves that the marriage tie cannot be broken by any sort of divorce. For if by a bill of divorce a woman were freed from the law that binds her to her husband she might marry another husband without being in the least guilty of adultery. Yet our Lord says clearly, Whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another committeth adultery. That's in Luke chapter 16. Hence it is plain that the bond of marriage can be dissolved by death alone, as is confirmed by the Apostle when he says, A woman is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband die she is at liberty, let her marry whom she will only in the Lord. And again, to them that are married, not I, but the Lord commandeth that the wife depart not from her husband, and if she depart, that she remain unmarried, to be or be reconciled to her husband. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the wife then, who for a just cause has left her husband, the apostle offers this alternative let her either remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Nor does Holy Church permit husband and wife to separate without weighty reasons. The Advantages of Indissolubility Lest, however, the law of matrimony should seem too severe on account of its absolute indissolubility, the advantages of this indissolubility should be pointed out. The first beneficial consequence is that men are given to understand that in entering matrimony virtue and congeniality of disposition are to be preferred to wealth or beauty, a circumstance that cannot but prove of the very highest advantage to the interests of society at large. In the second place, if marriage could be dissolved by divorce, married persons would hardly ever be without causes of disunion, which would be daily supplied by the old enemy of peace and purity. While on the contrary, now that the faithful must remember that even though separated as to bed and board, they remain nonetheless bound by the bond of marriage with no hope of marrying another, they are by this very fact rendered less prone to strife and discord. And even if it sometimes happens that husband and wife become separated and are unable to bear the want of their partnership any longer, they are easily reconciled by friends and return to their common life. The pastor should not here omit the salutary admission of St. Augustine who, to convince the faithful that they should not consider it a hardship to receive back the wife they have put away for adultery, provided she repents of her crime, observes, why should not the Christian husband receive back his wife when the church receives her? And why should not the wife pardon her adulterous but penitent husband when Christ has already pardoned him? True it is that scripture calls him foolish who keepeth an adulteress, but the meaning refers to her who refuses to repent of her crime and quit the disgraceful course she has entered on. From all this it will be clear that Christian marriage is far superior in dignity and perfection to that of Gentiles and Jews. And that's an interesting paragraph of the Catechism, even though written in the 16th century, um, still has a very realistic uh, um, and practical pragmatic view here that um, since since marriage is indissoluble um, all of these advantages um, lead to a more peaceful life among married people and it's kind of um, it makes you chuckle a little bit when it says that if marriage was dissoluble then um, the experience shows that husbands and wives could find um, any number of reasons on a day-to-day basis to to dissolve their marriage. Uh, thankfully, though, it is indissoluble, and so um, I, I chuckle at that just because I, I certainly wouldn't want my wife to uh, find many reasons to put me away. <laughs> so now the Catechism continues. The three blessings of marriage. The faithful should also be shown that there are three blessings of marriage. Children fidelity, and the sacrament. These are blessings which to some degree compensate for the inconveniences referred to by the Apostle in the words, such shall have tribulation of the flesh. And they lead to this other result that sexual intercourse, which is sinful outside of marriage, is rendered right and honorable. So first it treats of offspring. The first blessing then is a family, that is to say children born of a true and lawful wife, So highly did the Apostle esteem this blessing that he says, The woman shall be saved by bearing children. These words are to be understood not only of bearing children, but also of bringing them up and training them to the practice of piety. For the Apostle immediately subjoins, If she continue in faith, Scripture says, Hast thou children, instruct them, and bow down their necks from childhood. The same is taught by the Apostle. While Tobias, Job, and the other holy patriarchs in sacred scripture furnish us with beautiful examples of such training, the duties of both parents and children will, however, be set forth in detail when we come to speak of the fourth commandment. uh, The second blessing, fidelity. The second advantage of marriage is faith, not indeed that virtue which we receive in baptism, but the fidelity which binds wife to husband and husband to wife in such a way that they mutually deliver to each other power over their bodies, promising at the same time never to violate the holy bond of matrimony. This is easily inferred from the words pronounced by Adam when taking Eve as his wife, and which were afterwards confirmed by Christ our Lord in the Gospel. Wherefore a man shall leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. It is also inferred from the words of the apostle, The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And in like manner, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Justly then did the Lord in the old law ordain the most severe penalties against adulterers who violated this conjugal fidelity. Matrimonial fidelity also demands that they love one another with a special, holy, and pure love, not as adulterers love one another, but as Christ loves his church, This is the rule laid down by the apostle when he says husbands love your wives as christ also loved the church and surely christ's love for his church was immense it was a love inspired not by his own advantage but only by the advantage of his spouse the third advantage is called the sacrament that is to say the indissoluble bond of marriage as the apostle has it the lord commanded that the wife depart not from the husband and if she depart that she remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. And truly, if marriage as a sacrament represents the union of Christ with his church, it also necessarily follows that just as Christ never separates himself from his church, so in like manner the wife can never be separated from her husband insofar as regards the marriage tie. And so the uh, catechism, um, that's where that section on the three blessings of marriage ends, namely the offspring, the fidelity, and the sacrament. And it's interesting that um, the Catechism sets forth uh, these three things, following St. Thomas, of course, and this has always been the teaching of the Church, but that the sacrament of matrimony is the sign of Christ's union with the Church. And so really, the Catechism underscores this idea that if marriage was dissoluble, then what what effect that would have on our understanding of Christ's. Um, or we might say we would, lose, we would lose this wonderful sign of the union of Christ and his church. It's unthinkable that Christ would abandon his church. Uh, so, so marriage and matrimony is that s- sign through its indissolubility. It's a powerful sign as St. Uh, Paul says, this is a great sacrament. So in our next episode, we'll finish up the sacrament of matrimony. We'll talk about the duties of married people, the duties of a husband and the duties of a wife, the right to be observed, impediments to matrimony, and um, the consent of the parents and the use of marriage. And uh, then we'll finish uh, with, this, with our seventh and last sacrament. So thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and I look forward to finishing this uh, sacrament up with you in our next episode.